Lord, we bow before you, we humble ourselves, we acknowledge that you are God and that it is to you everything we are and have is due. Lord, the Bible is your word, it's your revelation to us, you can communicate truth and your priorities. And as we're in scripture this morning, we ask your spirit to make real to each one of us the thing you want us to take away this morning. We thank you, Lord. We're always your debtors. We're always the ones in need, even as we bless you and praise you. You are the great and eternal one, and we are thrilled to be in your presence this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Deuteronomy 3 in a couple of moments. If you have a Bible, you can turn there now. I want to start by talking about John the Baptist, John the Baptist from the New Testament and the Gospel accounts. He's an interesting and he's a significant figure in Scripture for sure. You remember John is from the line of the priests, but he's not exercising his, his priesthood in the temple like Father Zechariah did, but rather his priesthood is exercised in the wilderness. He's called the Baptist because as he calls the nation to repentance, they're baptized, they go under the waters, and it's an indication that they're associating with John's call to repentance and preparation for Yahweh's appearance in the Messiah. He's a voice in the desert preparing the way for Israel and their God to join them from Isaiah 40, the lofty phrase and and language in Isaiah 40 referring to John. He's like Elijah if you read the last phrases in the Old Testament out of Malachi 4. He's the one that would come like Elijah and he would turn the hearts of fathers and children to each other before the day of the Lord approached. And, and significantly, if that wasn't enough, when Jesus talks about him in Matthew 11 and Luke 7, Jesus says of those born among women, there's none more important, more significant, more weighty than John the Baptist. That's heady praise, isn't it? You think of Abraham, the father of faith. You think of Moses, the lawgiver. Think of King David. Think of the prophets, and Jesus says there's none that's loftier, higher than John the Baptist. And yet for all that, at the end of the day, we know that John served a subservient role, a role that was never meant to be independent or freestanding, that John always understood his role was to be an introduction to someone else, to Israel's God and Savior. In fact, he says this in John 3.30, He said, I must decrease, Jesus has come on the scene when he says this, I must decrease and he must increase. That John got that his role was to introduce someone else. His role was not to be the guy. His role was to introduce God's Savior. This morning we're going to be in the fourth message in the series titled Mercy Waiting Lessons in Deuteronomy. And we're looking at Moses and we're looking at God's refusal to allow Moses to go into the land of promise. That's the theme that will be in this morning. What we'll see ultimately is that like John the Baptist, Moses was always meant, as significant a figure as he is, he was always meant to be someone like John who introduced people to Christ. Moses was never meant to be an end in himself. He was always meant to be a link in the chain that would lead folks to Christ. So we're going to look at the Deuteronomy passage and several others. Uh, We're going to come up a little bit. We'll try and answer some questions about why this was the case, what was going on, and we'll make some applications along the way. So if you've got your Bible, Deuteronomy 3, we'll we'll start in at verse 23. And to bring you up to speed, 
This is at the end, near the end of Moses' life. The nation of Israel is poised on the border of the land of promise. The two and a half tribes already have their land allotment on the east side of the Jordan River. The rest of the nation is ready to go into the land of promise proper on the west side of Jordan. And this is the conversation, one of the conversations Moses has with God related to that. So, at that time, Moses says, I pleaded with the Lord. Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the things and mighty works you do? Here's his plea. Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country and Lebanon. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and wouldn't listen to me. That's enough, the Lord said. Don't speak to me anymore about this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah, that's a mountain on the east side of the Jordan River, and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your eyes, since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. So you're going to see the land, Moses, but you're not going over. Joshua's going to go over. Um, if you've got your Bibles open, turn to Deuteronomy 1, verses 34 through 38. We're going to see a recurring theme here. Referring to 38 years earlier when God in this short period of time through Moses had led Israel to the southern border of the land of promise at Kadesh Barnea. He's referring to that when he says this. Remember the spies went up and they spied out the land. And they come back, they say it's a great place on one hand. And then they scare the nation by saying, but man, there's giants and walled cities and we're not going to be able to do this. So he says, the Lord heard your words, those, those words of unbelief 38 years earlier, and he was angered and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Moses, you're not going in. Along with the rest of the nation that you've led, you are not going into the land of promise. Flip forward a couple of pages to Deuteronomy 4, verses 21 and 22. He says, Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and He swore that I should not cross the Jordan. So when God swears, you can count on it. He swore I should not cross the Jordan that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. And last, if you go to the end of Deuteronomy, very nearly the end, chapter 31, verses 1 and 2, Moses said to them, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. So we've got a theme here, don't we? God has sworn and he's repeated, Moses, you are not going into the land of promise. You're going to die on this side. You can see the land of promise, but you're not going to be able to go in. And it's fair to ask, what in the world happened? Why, why is Moses being forbidden from going into the land? He's been with these people 40 years and they're poised. They're ready to go in. They've been in the desert. They're going to go into a land flowing with milk and honey. And God says, you're done right here. What in the world happened? Why is that? And for the reason, we need to turn to Numbers 20. So if you go backwards in your Bible to Numbers chapter 20, 
I'll point out, we'll read a few verses in this, but I want to point out first. If you remember the Exodus account from the book of Exodus, Exodus 17, there's an account there early in the Exodus period where Israel's in the wilderness, they've left Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and there's no water, and there's a rock there. And God gives the nation water from that rock. The incident we're reading in Numbers 20 is not that incident. It's a different time, and it's a different place, and God gives Moses different instructions, and there's a different outcome, and this is where the outcome for Moses is is highly negative. So they're very similar When you read John's gospel, there's two accounts of the cleansing of the temple. And some people say, well, there's only one account and they're spoken of differently. We say, well, no, actually there's one early and there's one late. And that's similar to this. There's one account that's early and there's one late and they're very similar, but there are some key distinctions. So this is Numbers 20, verses 2 through 13. I'll skip through this just a little bit. Uh, There was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, his brother. And the people quarreled with Moses. They complained. And they said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. In other words, at this time, remember the end of almost all of the 40 years, people have died naturally, but also people have been struck dead by God in these different accounts of rebellion and complaining along the way. So they're here, they're near the land of promise, the time is almost up, and there's no water. And they're in the same pickle they were almost 40 years earlier, and they're making the same complaint. Verse 7, so the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff, take your staff, and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So there's a rock there, just like Exodus 17. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Verse 10, then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, hear now you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. They got a lot of livestock with them. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, so this sounds semi-good so far. This is God's response. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. This is skipping ahead just for another reference, but Numbers 27 verses 12 through 14 says, God says to Moses, you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. So with all this language where God's telling Moses, you are not going in no way, no how, and we say, well, what's the deal? This is the account, and this is why Moses isn't going into the land of promise. God refuses him entrance because Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And God says that the difference between what God commanded and what he did was disobedience to God himself and disobedience that showed disrespect for God. It says, he says, you failed to uphold me as holy. So the God of all gods tells Moses, you do this, you, you, you uh, speak to the rock. Moses spoke to the people and struck the rock. And God says, 
the difference between the command and the fulfillment showed that Moses wasn't upholding God as holy, that Moses said, well, God said one thing, but I can do another. I'll make up my mind as I see fit. God's not significant enough for me to do just what he said. Now, you've got to imagine Moses' disappointment because this is repeated. This was an issue for Moses, wasn't it? I really want to go in. And God keeps saying, but, but you're not going in. So he's been with Israel 40 years in the wilderness. So 40 years in the desert with this group that complains no matter what's going on. 40 years in the wilderness with this complaining group, and he's on the border of the land flowing with milk and honey, and God says, you're not going in. Now, go back another 40 years. Where was he for 40 years before this? He was in the desert. For 40 more years, so 80 years total, he was in the desert, 40 years as a shepherd in the desert. And where was he for the first 40 years of his life? He was, he was in the palaces of Pharaoh in Egypt. This is a guy who's gone from the, the wealthiest, loftiest position in the world of his day to 80 years in the wilderness. And at the end of it all, God says, you're dying on this side. You're not going into the land of promise. You can imagine he's a little deflated. He's disappointed for sure. 80 years total, and here we are on the border, and he's not going in. And it definitely raises the question, and this is the difference between us and God for sure, so I might say, seems like a little thing. Yeah, it's disobedience, I get that. You know, God said do one thing and he does another. And I might say, uh, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. But God said it was a big deal. Uh, Gordon Wenham, in his commentary, the Tyndale commentary says this. I think this is a good, uh, concise description of what's going on. He said, though this, Moses striking the rock, though this brought forth water... It was not produced in the divinely intended way and counted as rebelling against God's command. It was unbelief. And that's what God said it was. It was unbelief. Faith is the correct response to God's word, whether it is a word of promise or a word of command. The opposite of faith is rebellion or disobedience. The opposite of faith is rebellion or disobedience. Thus, Moses' failure to carry out the Lord's instructions precisely was as much an act of unbelief as the people's failure to trust God's promise instead of the spies' pessimistic reports. That's back in Numbers 14 when the spies who'd seen the good land came back and said, we can't do it. This isn't going to work. He says, both were punished by exclusion from the land of promise because Aaron helped Moses, he received the same sentence. So on one hand, it sounds like a little deal, this striking the rock twice, because in his anger toward the people, though, God says, you, you disrespected me. You didn't uphold me as holy. And remember, the key description of God in all of Scripture is God is holy. He's absolutely different. He's unique from any and everything else. And there's not even a thought or a hint of imperfection in him. And to his clear command, Moses says, well, I'll do what I want and I'll do it my way and this is the way I'm going to choose to do it. And God says, this just doesn't work. We don't do this. Now, it may seem harsh, but there's two things, two points I want to draw out of this point. The first is this. Uh, a few weeks ago, I think the last message in this series, uh, we talked about the fact that if we get only what we deserve, we get judgment. Guys, every one of us, right? Because... We're imperfect before a holy and perfect God. And we made the case biblically that if all we get is justice and fairness and equity and what God owes us, we get judgment. 
So we can say no matter what else went on in Moses' life, he's had 120 years of God's mercy and grace. And he was blessed with all kinds of blessings. He'd had God's mercy and grace every day. No doubt about it. That's the first point. The second is this, and this, is, this comes up in Old and New Testaments. It's this, and Jesus, you'll see it illustrated here and elsewhere, but Jesus speaks it in Luke 12, 48, when he says this, Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So what had God given Moses and what was he responsible for what was he accountable for because the inference here is if I've been given much much is required of me there's a higher level of judgment if you will for those who've been given much so you remember back in Moses' story in Exodus uh, God spared his life providentially his parents put him in a little basket and it's God at work who gets Pharaoh's daughter to come down at the river at the right time and there's that baby and oh I'll take that baby in so Moses is raised in the palaces of Egypt. He is royalty. He's got life as good as it could have been had in the Middle East at that time. That's what God gave Moses for the first 40 years of his life. He gave him a wife and children when, when he does leave. When Moses does things his way, if you remember, he kills a man. And then he flees for his life. And in the midst of the wilderness where there's not much going on, God gives him a wife and a family it's probably not the life he'd envision, but that was God's mercy and grace to him as well, two sons. And think of this too. There's no one in the Bible who spent as much time personally in God's presence than Moses did. So if you think of back at Sinai, you know, Exodus 20, when Israel meets around Mount Sinai, Moses is with God on the mountain for weeks at a time. And, and God says of Moses, when he defends Moses to others, he says, with other people I speak through a dream or a vision, but with Moses I speak face to face. Now, it's not that God saw, uh, that Moses saw God's face. It's that I am personal with Moses in a way that is not true of anyone else. So if we say, what was Moses accountable for? What was he responsible for? He had a level of responsibility unique on the earth because of who he was in God's economy and what God had given him. So the standard of judgment for Moses was high because of all that Moses had been given. You can read on your own time, if you look at 2 Samuel 12, verses 7 through 14, there's a similar message in the life of King David. And the language is there is really helpful. David had sinned. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He brought about Uriah's death. And God is speaking to him about those things. And God says, he says, I gave you, I gave you, I gave you, I gave you, and I would have given you more. And then this is what you did. And so then God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will judge your household after you. You've, you were given all this. And in fact, in the language similar here to the, this uh, account in Deuteronomy, he says, you have brought dishonor on my name among the Gentiles. That people will speak ill of Israel's God because of what you have done. Given much, accountable for much. And so the judgment against David was severe. If you read about it for his household, you know, if I was David hearing those words of God, I'd be weeping because of what I had brought on my own family. 
If you read too, there's a few verses that this theme about we're accountable, we're responsible for what we've been given. John 15, 22, Jesus speaks of Israel and its leadership. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, the sin of rejecting me. He says, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus says, I've come on the scene, I've performed the signs and wonders, I am who I said I am, I've given them God's word, and they've rejected me. He says, there's no excuse. They have no excuse. They have everything they need to believe. You see this in Romans 2, verses 12 through 16. Paul writes, all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That God's holding each group, the Jews and the Gentiles, accountable for what they knew, for what they'd been given. And last, James 3, 1, same principle He says, not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And the thought there is you have more insight, you have more revelation of God and His will, purpose, and truth, and so you're held to a higher standard. So Moses doesn't go into the land of promise because he failed God in a way that was, if you will, without excuse. God says, this is This should never have happened. You've disrespected me. You were given this much, and this was your response, so we're done with this now. Now, guys, I want to pause here for this reason. The principle that we're accountable for what we're given, it's still at work today, isn't it? It's still at work today. And, guys, there's no one in this room. There's no one that's taken breath today that hasn't been given ridiculous amounts of grace and mercy by God. And I'm speaking specifically just of us as believers. If you're not a Christian, this doesn't apply. But to believers, you remember Jesus said, John the Baptist, he's the greatest. No one greater than John. And then do you remember what he said afterwards? And the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. He was speaking about people like you and me. The greatest person before Jesus was John And he said, if you're the least in my kingdom, you're greater than John. John was a servant, and and what are we? We're children of God. We're his children. We're the Father's children. Guys, we've been given much. That is ridiculous, John 1. He gave them the right to be called sons, sons and daughters of God. We're forgiven. We've been removed from the dark kingdom of this world to God's son's kingdom. Think of this, we've been sealed with the third person of the Trinity. This is mind-blowing, and I think it's easy to forget because you don't always feel the benefit of it. You know, in Ephesians 1, Paul writes that when we believed something happened, something that no one could see and you probably didn't hear or feel, but that the Holy Spirit stamped you just like someone would take hot wax and stamp it with a seal ring, you were stamped that you belonged to God's. You you were no longer your own. You were no longer a member of the kingdom of this world. You were God's and He sealed you. He put His seal on you and said, you're mine. And then beyond sealing you, Scripture is quite clear on this, that as believers we have the Holy Spirit within us. Romans 8 says if you don't have the Spirit, you're not His child. 1 Corinthians 12 says it's the Holy Spirit that's brought us into the family, the household of faith, and that God has given us our spiritual gifts through the Spirit who dwells in us. So that when Christians talk about the temple of God today, we're talking about each other. So that Scripture doesn't say, doesn't talk about a temple today that God dwells in that's a building, church building. 
He says, you as an individual who have the Holy Spirit within you, by, by definition, you are the temple of God. And that corporately, Christians together, corporately are the temple of God. That's language out of 1 Corinthians 3. Guys, that's high privilege, is it not? We have the fullness of the Word of God. We have the honor and privilege of meeting with God every day, as many times a day as we can, in His Word. That God has given us His Spirit, and the Spirit enlightens our mind and our heart and our soul to the truth of God in His Word. Guys, the, we have riches that other people couldn't have dreamed of. You know, I think it's Peter... Uh, you get to see things that the Old Testament prophets that you respect and look up to, they long to see what you see, and they couldn't. That this high level of privilege. We have God's promises. He can't lie both for time and for eternity, for provision, the fruits of the Spirit. God's at work in our life. He turns everything upside down to make even the bad good. We know where we're going when we die. We're co-heirs with Christ. This is ridiculous, right? Paul told Christians like you and I, you will judge angels. Paul's point was you, you, can, you can figure things out between yourselves because Christians with Christ will sit in judgment on angels, he said. And Christians in Revelation, we're told, will rule and reign with Jesus from his throne. How much higher can you go? How much greater can you be blessed than Christians are blessed today? spiritually in Christ. If you don't have anything else, what we have in Christ for time and for eternity, you, you can't get this. You can't buy this. You can't make this up. And we live in a time and a place where we have unparalleled freedom still at this moment and physical provisions that people in past history couldn't have imagined, couldn't have, couldn't have dreamed of. So what are we responsible for? What's, what's the level of accountability, do you think, that Christians are held to? So, based on what we have as believers and what God has given us in other spheres of life, what am I, what am I, what am I personally responsible for? So, I have spiritual gifts, I have finances, I have relationships, I have neighbor, you, you see where this goes. God's put us in a particular time and place and then he's equipped us with what he's given and we're responsible for those things. When we stand before Christ, guys, Christians have already, we passed out of judgment and into life. John 5, I think 27 or 427. We're out of judgment. Judgment for our sin is not an issue. But judgment as stewards of what God has entrusted to us is and that's 1 Corinthians 3, and it's 2 Corinthians 5, and that's called the Bema or the judgment seat of Christ, when we'll stand before Jesus, and He will review the works of our lives. And it's like, okay, Junior, I gave you this. What did you do? I gave you much. What did you do? Were you responsible? Were you accountable with what you were given? That's still the question. So Jesus is merciful, and when we stand before the judgment seat, there's going to be loss on one hand. Paul says, the stuff in our life that wasn't done for Christ, it's like, it's like chaff and wood, it just gets burned up. But it's not an issue of salvation, it's just that we're able to receive less reward than God would have given us. So guys, compared to Moses, you're more accountable and I'm more responsible than Moses 
because we've been given more than Moses was. And we need to take that seriously. Your study sheet has some questions. Are we bringing honor to Christ's name by what we say and what we do? Because that was the issue here. Moses treated God disrespectfully. What do people gain from their interaction with us of their view of the God we say we belong to and believe in? If I've shared the gospel with a neighbor or a friend or somebody I work with, great, we want to do that. We should be about that business. But what does my life and what does my obedience to God or disobedience to God, what does it do to my witness to those people? What do others make of God through the lens that is us? That's a big deal. Are we bringing God honor or dishonor? Are we living faithfully day by day with what he's given us or not? This is a huge issue. Moses didn't go in because he was given much and he didn't respond faithfully. And we have been given more. And so there's a real question. Are we living out of what God's given us? And he empowers us to do that. By the way, I, I, um, guilt will only get you so far down the road. I hope nothing I ever say produces guilt only conviction is a different thing and when the holy spirit is knocking on us we know god's showing me something god's telling me something so if we respond to something like this we just want to say lord what where do you want me what what's what are you calling me up to what do i need to give or quit or give up or any of that stuff guilt guilt is not what we're interested in it just it doesn't do anything for you long term love for god does conviction by god's spirit that'll move us down the road So if we look at our life and we say, I'm bringing dishonor to Christ's name, I'm not being responsible with the things God gave me, that's another question. Then let's deal with that. Let's prayerfully work through that. Uh, The the second point in here, I'm I'm putting simply to cover bases in the text. I think it needs to be said, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, Did you get from the passages we read when God tells Mo, you're not going in, what does Moses say? To the people, he kind of says, you made me do it. Did you see that? Uh, Deuteronomy 137, the Lord was angry with me on your account. Deuteronomy 4, the Lord was angry with me because of you. So when, when Moses says that, he's sort of saying, you made me do this. Now, I will say, Scripture, not in these passages, Scripture gives some credibility to Moses' claim that he was stirred up by the people. And we get that. And you can see God responds emotionally to the constant grumbling and complaining of the Jews in the wilderness. And Moses is responding emotionally to that too. But at the end of the day, God doesn't let Moses off the hook because of the complaints and the grumblings of the nation. He still holds Moses responsible. So we appreciate Moses' frustration with the grumbling, but Moses must ultimately accept responsibility for what he did. And we've got to be careful of that ourselves. Guys, we know on one hand, First John, uh, if we say we have no sin, we're lying. If I say I'm not sinning, I'm sinning in the very statement, in the very thought. Because we sin. We all sin. James says we all sin in many ways. So we get that. But Scripture also says that we have been equipped and empowered to say no to temptation. And sin. And we've got an example in Jesus 
Jesus was fully human like we are without a sinful disposition. He was tempted in every way you and I can ever be tempted, and he didn't sin. And then Peter looks back on Jesus and he says, that's our example for how we respond to temptations to sin. Outside ourselves, temptations that are in front of me, maybe put there by others purposely or not, but the temptations I face in life, Jesus has given me an example of how to respond. This is 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. And 1 Peter 2 has a lot to do with persecution and suffering generally. So this is probably not applicable to us in the sense that someone is persecuting me actively for the faith, but the example still works. He says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. That's an example. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He spoke the truth. When he was reviled, others are speaking ill of him. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus is this model, I can be tempted, but I don't have to sin. And God's given me everything I need in any given situation to say no to temptation and sin and go down the road. Now, John tells us we're still going to blow it. We will. So that's still a given, but we don't have to. So for instance, I might say to you, I'm sorry that I spoke to you in anger, but you were so rude I couldn't help it. Now, am I really owning what I did, or I'm giving you the benefit of my sin? That's a little bit of what Moses is doing. Yes, I blew it, but you made me do it. Or if I'm a student, I cheated on my test because everyone else was. I had to cheat just so that I could be competitive with my classmates on the curve. You made me do this. I wouldn't have done this, but you made me do this. We may be helped along the way to disobedience, but just like Moses, ultimately we're still responsible for what we choose to do. So that's a minor lesson in this. Guys, the place I want to hang our hat this morning and the point that I want you to go away with apart from anything else is this third point. The text doesn't say this, uh, but, but I'll say this. Moses was never going into the land of promise. Moses was never going to cross the Jordan River, ever. He was not God's man to lead Israel into the land of promise. It was never going to happen. And this specific point of disobedience was the means by which God tells Moses, you've disobeyed and so you're going to stay here, you're not crossing over. But Moses was never the man that was going to take Israel into the land of promise. And I want to develop that because it it takes us home where we need to end on a text like this and many, many others like it. Um, I want to pull the passage apart to look at Moses, the land of promise, Joshua, and then ultimately Christ, okay? So Moses first. Moses is not only the lawgiver. He's not only the guy from Sinai that got the tablets and received the law and gave it to Israel. He represents the law. Moses is a representative of the law. And the law, guys, cannot save you. The law can only condemn you. The law can tell you elements of God's righteousness and justice, but it can't equip you to live up to it. Because Moses represents the law, and because the law can never get us to, if you will, the promised land, we'll talk about that here in just a second, someone else 
with a different kind of ministry would need to come along to get Israel into the land of promise and to deliver people ultimately into eternal life and paradise. And Moses and what he represents can never do it. It's an impossibility. We'll talk about the law next time, Lord willing. And what the law required was do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll live. And what you find in life under the law is God says, do this and live. I don't do and I die. Moses and what he represents, the law, cannot lead us into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey that God means to get us to. The beauty and the perfections of the law, and by the way, please don't misunderstand anything I say this morning against reading and embracing the law, the prophets, the writings, all of the Old Testament. We don't live under that law today, but all of that scripture, this is where we're going, it's always meant to lead us to Christ. And this story is meant to lead us to Christ, okay? So Moses and the law can't get Israel into the land of promise. We're going to need someone else to do that. The land of promise is not only a piece of geography that's still there in the Middle East today, and it's got hills and boundaries and rivers and streams and all that good stuff. But like Moses representing the law, the land of promise also is representative of this fullness and blessing of life that God meant Israel to enjoy and means for us to enjoy as well. So physically, in their time and place, the land of promise, we're going to go in. In fact, let me read you just a little bit of this. God called the land of promise, one, a place flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Milk and honey representative of this rich, abundant life. It was a new home already prepared by God for His people. Does that language sound familiar? There's going to be a home that's going to be prepared for you. You didn't build it. I built it. I'm going to bring you into it. It was a place with crops already planted, vines already growing, houses already built, a place where God's people would live with Him and each other in joy and abundance. That's, that's the promised land. Moses and the law could not take Israel into the land of promise because as a representation, the law can't ultimately deliver us from our sin or lead us into life and blessing. It would take someone other than Moses to lead Israel into the land of promise and it would take someone else to lead us into favor with God and abundance and everlasting life. So as representations, Moses representing the law, the law cannot save you. It simply points out all the ways we fail to live before God as we should. Now, God told Moses, you don't go in, but Joshua does. Joshua goes in. So God tells Moses, Joshua would lead Israel through the waters of the Jordan into the land of promise, flowing with milk and honey. It's Joshua who fights Israel's battles. It's Joshua who, with the armies of Israel, defeats Israel's enemies. And it's Joshua who who enables God's people to live in peace. Now, you probably are aware, in Hebrew, Joshua is Jehoshua. And the, the J-A in the name is from Yah, from, from Yahweh, and the name literally means God saves or God saved. And so, you know, as words, as names change through different languages, we know that Yehoshua, Joshua, in the English Bibles is Jesus, right? If you read it in the Greek, it's Yesu. If you read the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it'd be Yesu will lead you into the land of promise. But in English, this would say, Jesus will lead you into the land of promise. Joshua becomes the representation for Christ himself, 
The law and Moses can't get you in, but Joshua, God saves, he can get you there. And God saves, he'll fight your battles. And God saves, he'll lead you into the place of milk and honey and abundance and life and joy and peace and fruitfulness. Joshua is the one that will get in there. Just as Joshua would lead Israel into promise, it would be Jesus who would lead God's people from death to life, from sojourners in a wilderness to a place of promise, from the just requirements of the law to the fertile fields of God's forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Moses can't get you there. Jesus can. It's Jesus who has already fought and defeated our great enemy and accuser, the devil. That's a battle you and I couldn't win. It's Jesus who leads us today in our own spiritual battles. We're equipped because Christ himself is with us. He's leading us just as Joshua led Israel. Jesus leads us day by day and will lead us home to the home, John 14, he has gone ahead and prepared for us and that our life will be with him forever. It says this in John 1.17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the contrast we're meant to see between Moses and the law and Jesus. And in the Greek, this grace and truth, that's the English slash Greek equivalent of loving kindness and faithfulness in the Old Testament. Those two phrases go hand in hand in the Old Testament and the same concept is true in the New and we're told that it's Jesus who brings about God's loving kindness and faithfulness to us. And it's in Christ. It's always in and through Christ. Uh, for time's sake, let me, um, let me move to Matthew. There's this, uh, I think this helps make the point. The, the tale in the Synoptic Gospels of what's called the Mount of Transfiguration is a great story. Jesus goes up onto a mountain. He takes Peter, James, and John. And while they're on that mountaintop, Jesus, his visage changes and he becomes this glowing, glorious person before them. And these two other guys show up and the disciples know who they are. They've never met, but they know who those two, two guys are. And it's Moses and it's Elijah. Now, why is it Moses and Elijah? Because Moses represents the law and because Elijah represents the prophets. And it says, the text says they're talking to Jesus about his own personal exodus, his upcoming impending death. And Peter looks and he sees his heroes. I don't know who that would be for us. There's Moses. There's Elijah. They're the guys. Those are our heroes. We read Moses. We read Elijah. We wanted to be like them when we were kids. And here they are right here. And so Peter has the bright idea. He says, Lord, this is so cool. We'll make three little shrines. We'll put you in one. We'll put Moses in one. We'll put Elijah in the other. Won't that be great? And a voice from heaven. Guys, they're like on Sinai. On Sinai, there's a cloud of God's presence. On this mountain, there's a cloud of God's presence. And the voice of the Father speaks from the cloud and says, nothing about Moses, nothing about Elijah. He says, this is my son. You listen to him. This is my son. You listen to him. And listen to the way this concludes. Verse 8 when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That's where all of this goes. So here's the law and the prophets, 
And you remember, Jesus fulfills all of the Scripture. Think of Luke 24, walk into Emmaus, and He tells His disciples all the way Scripture, the Old Testament, had reflected Him. And if you read the epistle to the Hebrews, you know it's this comparison of here's all the shadows in the Old Testament of what God was up to, and here comes Jesus, and He's the substance. And Jesus is better than Moses, and He's better than the covenant, the Old Covenant, and He's better than the high priesthood, and He's better than the offerings. All these things. Moses was always meant to get folks to Christ. Moses was never going into the land of promise because he represents the fact, folks, that on our own we cannot get there. By our efforts, we cannot do and live. We start sinful, we live sinful. We need a Joshua. We need a God saves to come into our life and take us all the way home. And that's Jesus. And the law and the prophets, which I encourage you to read as much as you can, because they lead us to Christ. But the thought, just like John the Baptist, Moses is meant to be occluded by the one he represents, by the one he was always meant to introduce us to. He doesn't stand on his own. Moses, like John, is meant to introduce us to Christ. And Christ is the one that saves us and leads us home. The law can show us elements of life and promise. It can point out elements of mercy and grace. Moses can take us to a mountain where in the distance we can see milk and honey, but he can never, ever get us there. Only Jesus and the grace he brings can lead us into life and promise. Only Jesus can take us beyond law and judgment to grace, mercy, and peace. At this point, I tell you too, try and say this regularly, uh, have you trusted Christ? Is Christ your Savior? Do you know that if you died today, you go to heaven not because of anything you've done, but because Jesus has died for your sins? It's the only plea we have. You know, there are many people that think they're Christians going to heaven because, and this is what they'll do, they're, they're a little bit like people we read about in Sunday school this morning. They say, I believe in Jesus, and I believe in this, and this, and this. I believe in Jesus. How are you going to heaven? I'm being a good person and living a good life. I say, well, you know, that's not the gospel. The gospel says Jesus and Jesus alone saves us. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. We receive the gift. That's it. Jesus has done it. So the real question for us, whether we're looking at the law or reading the New Testament, is do we have Christ? It's all that matters. You know, you not only gain the sense of peace and joy with God's presence here, but you get eternal life. Your sins are forgiven and you get to be with Jesus in a land flowing with milk and honey forever. I want to close on this comparison again about what God means us to get out of the Bible and the people in the Bible. Moses' call was always a supporting role to introduce Israel and ultimately, of course, us today to Christ, to Jesus. Like John the Baptist, Moses was from the line of priests and he exercised his priesthood in the wilderness. Like John the Baptist, those who followed Moses were said to be baptized into him, 1 Corinthians 10, because they were identified with Moses and the law. Like John the Baptist, Moses was always meant to be a voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. Like John, Moses called fathers and children to be united in their common life in faith, Deuteronomy 6. Moses was the greatest man of any age before him, and yet for all that, he plays a supporting role to the one he came to introduce.
We're supposed to lose Moses because Christ has occluded him. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, wrote Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is him to whom you shall listen. I think it's that passage that the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration is citing. Moses said, when the prophet comes, listen to him. And God says, listen to my son. Same thing. Words from Moses. John the Baptist said this to his disciples. I am not the Christ. I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. That's true for all of us. Christ must increase, we must decrease. Everyone and everything decreases compared to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the real questions to end on, are we trying to follow Moses and the law? Are we trying to justify ourselves by some effort on our part? Or is Jesus leading us home? Is that the one we're trusting? Is he the one we're following? Have we found mercy waiting for us like light pouring from an open door on a dark night in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Moses is meant to lead us there. John the Baptist is meant to lead us there. All of Scripture is meant to lead us to Christ. Let me pray, and as I do, would the worship team come on up. Father, help us to lose everything and find Christ. Help us to hold on to nothing that keeps us from Him and the blessing and the life he means to lead us into. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, let's read from Hebrews 10 together. You can stand and we'll read this together. Stretch as we get ready to worship. There's some great, great songs coming up. Read with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful.